One of the charges or allegations that is often leveled against the church of God is that we teach salvation by works. And they're simply not true. We don't do that. It's not accurate. We recently celebrated a season of the year that brings this whole concept into sharp focus, frankly, as to whether or not uh, we earn salvation. We can earn our way into God's kingdom. Spring Holy Days, of course, like I said, bring that into to sharp focus. And we go through a time of self-examination. We celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And sometimes we uh, misconstrue, even ourselves, I think, to a degree, as to whether or not we uh, celebrate or look forward to salvation based on only what we do. And that simply is not the case. The Bible does tell us in, in 1 Peter that judgment has begun and begins first with the house of God. So we realize we are under judgment. So we have to ask ourselves what, you know, how are we judged? Do any of us, I would ask this, do any of us maybe subtly sense or think that somehow we are uh, saved or forgiven based on our works? We believe in salvation by works because we must not believe that. It's simply not accurate, and it's even not, it's not biblical. And at the same time, we have to be careful to make sure we don't forget about the fact that God talks, tells us a lot about works. And talks about a reward that's going to be given to us. So, when looking at this afternoon, I'd like to review what the Bible says about a gift and a reward. And so you can put that down for a title for the sermon, if you like. A gift. And reward. Just in terms of understanding what we teach, we may as well get to the point here. From our statement of fundamental beliefs under the topic of salvation. It says, salvation is God's gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And references a couple of scriptures here. We'll turn to a couple of them in a moment. Upon repentance and baptism... God justifies us from our past sins. We then begin an ongoing process of being saved, of being in a state of earning, or not earning, but becoming saved when Jesus Christ returns. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, mentioned in Second Peter, we'll mention that later, our salvation will be complete at the resurrection. And then it talks here, it's a sub-point about steps towards salvation. Faith in Christ. So the first important step towards salvation is coming to complete faith in God and in Christ's sacrifice. Peter said, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then under repentance, it says a vital step towards salvation is repentance of sin, repentance of transgressing God's law. So let's turn over to Titus chapter 3, which is one of the scriptures that are referenced here. Titus chapter 3, and we'll go through a fair number of scriptures this afternoon to talk about this gift and the reward that that God promises. And some of these are very plain statements that salvation is a gift. Again, Titus chapter 3. We'll read verses 4 through 7. Verse 4 says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it tells us here that we are not saved because we are righteous, because we do righteous things, we do righteous works. That is not how we're saved. We're saved, it says here, by God's mercy, 
He points out here, not by our righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That he is in the process of delivering us into his kingdom. Back in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, a couple of verses here. We'll come back later for more, but verses 8 and 9. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace, by unmerited pardon, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Pointing out that it's a flaw of our nature that based on our conduct, we sometimes take a certain amount of pride in what we do. And God tells us here certainly that salvation is not something we can earn, lest anyone should boast. And if we could earn it, then we would probably be real petting ourselves on the back and uh, congratulating ourselves for what we had accomplished. But that is not the way it's supposed to be. God tells us clearly here that it's, we are saved by grace through faith. And then back in Romans chapter 3, In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, breaking into the middle of a thought and text, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, how we, whether that be the old ritual law, but certainly even the spiritual law, by no deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It tells us what is wrong, what is right. Helps us identify the the sin, understand it, and avoid it. So therefore, it's by the law is the knowledge of sin. Then in verse 23, he writes, Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. And the margin points out here it's without any cost. So justified freely by God's mercy through the redemption that is in Jesus or in Christ Jesus. Deliverance, the payment of a ransom, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness that the fact that God will give us this gift is a reflection and a, a testimony to the fact that God is righteous. We are supposed to become righteous as he is. And this mercy, this unmerited pardon that he extends to all of us, is simply a reflection of God's character and his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. We just celebrated that a couple of weeks ago, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then points out in verse 28, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified, that he's declared righteous, is what the margin renders it, justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, it doesn't say there that the deeds of the law aren't Required does not say the law is done away. He just says that that obedience does not does not have the effect of blotting out the sins of the past. We are justified freely by God's grace and His mercy. Then over in chapter five, verses eight through ten, this idea of salvation being a gift just Many, many scriptures that point this out very clearly. Romans 5, verse 8. <clears throat> but God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were, were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, by his death, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. 
much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Christ living his life in us is going to enable us to attain salvation. But this is not pointing out here that, again, this gift that God is offering to us. The sin, the past sins, are not blotted out by the deeds, by the obedience and following God's law forward. But the obedience is required of us, does not blot out any sin, that our past sins are atoned for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 20. And look at a parable concerning eternal life. While that term is not used here in this parable, but the parable of the penny or the parable of the denarius is certainly talking about eternal life. In verses 1 through 16, and I'm not going to read all of those, but we find here the account where a, a landowner hires people early in the morning to go out and work in the fields and offers them to, offers them a wage of a denarius. And then later in the day, he goes and finds some others that are still not working and hires them to go out and work. And all the way all down to uh, the 11th hour, I guess, so to speak. And in each case, he offers them a wage. And we find then in verse, we'll, we'll pick it up. In uh, in verse 8, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. So he starts with the, the people that have just, just started working an hour or so before. When they came, <clears throat> when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came... They supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each denarius. Uh, They were not being hired, at the beginning of the day, they were not being hired to be paid by the hour. They were just offered a day, a wage of one denarius if they would go do the work. And so they they were disappointed. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I give. I wish to give to this last man the sum as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? I'll just stop there, pointing out that this, this denarius or this penny represented eternal life and that God is calling some of us. He calls us when we're young and in some cases he calls us when we're quite old. And regardless of how long we are part of the family of God, where we're baptized and become begotten by God with uh, given his spirit, that God is calling that. To calling us to that, and whatever time in life that is, he's saying, if you obey me, if you repent, and you turn your life around, and you do what I ask you to do, and you serve me, then I will give you eternal life. That it's not a matter of how many good works we do. It's a matter that God says he is going to give us eternal life. So over in Acts chapter 2, familiar scripture, For so many topics, but Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them in this first sermon he gave, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance is required. That's a, an emotional, deep, deep felt feeling of sorrow for breaking God's law. But it also, by extension, 
requires a change of life. That we stop, try to stop doing what we know is wrong, and we start doing what God says we should do. We should obey His law. And if we do make that commitment, we make that decision, then God says He will give us His Holy Spirit. And uh, we go through the process of counseling for baptism. We do, we read book, booklets, we study, and we pray a lot to God for Him to give us repentance because it is, that is a gift as well. He opens our minds to understand these things and helps us have the determination to do what's right. And he gives us this understanding and then he forgives us at baptism. When we make that, if you will, a ceremonial uh, commitment, it's very brief. We all know that, that it has been baptized or we've seen it, that we're under the water maybe for a couple of seconds, thankfully, uh, not longer. And uh, in that brief moment, God wipes away all the record of the past. It's a very moving uh, occasion, but after weeks, sometimes months of studies and, and preparation, lots of prayer, lots of study, then it's over in just a couple of seconds to a degree. It takes longer to get in and out of the tank than it is to get baptized. And then we have the laying on of hands, which is... A bit longer, but it's a very special time, and sins are formally forgiven at that particular moment. All the past sins are wiped away, and yet we all know that the future is going to hold times where we continue to make mistakes. Something very special happens when we have the laying on of hands. Let's turn over to Acts or Ephesians chapter 1. This is one of the places this is referenced after being baptized in Christ's shed blood being applied to our past sins we go through the laying on of hands and God says he promises to give us his spirit in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, or his mercy. Then in verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They were sealed. We were begotten at that point as children of God. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That that spirit, that it, it just say, points out here in verse 14, it says, which is the guarantee or the down payment, the promise of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It's a guarantee. Guarantee. We're given God's Holy Spirit and we're begotten. A guarantee that he will work with us. And that if we remain faithful, he promises us. It's a guarantee that he will bring us, work with us, into his kingdom. Very important to understand that point, that, it's, that God gives us his spirit and we are sealed. At that point, we have been given the opportunity to qualify for God's kingdom. Because we are begotten by his Holy Spirit, a guarantee for it, very similar to what we call the down payment earnest money for buying a home or things like that. But he also says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, this Holy Spirit that we're given is the means by which we are given deeper understanding of God's word. But also as begotten children of God, we are, we have that seed of eternal life in us. First Peter chapter one, verse 22, verses 22 and 23. Since, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren. So part of our actions, we've 
We're, do, we're purifying through following God's way of life and studying His Word purifies us. Through sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been begotten, the English word here is born, but having been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So we have in us this spirit that is, the Bible says, incorruptible. That if we keep it, we are going to be given eternal life in due time, but it's incorruptible. And we have this incorruptible nature being put into us, and we're trying to develop the very nature of God. And keeping that, in terms of being given the gift of eternal life, that we have to keep that seed of eternal life. We have to keep that incorruptible seed in our minds, in our lives. I won't turn there, but you have in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 12, you have the parable of the ten virgins. And you read there that five of them were wise. They kept an extra supply of the oil while we're waiting for the deliverer to come. And they were careful to have an extra supply of God's spirit, of oil representing God's spirit. And there were five that were foolish, that were not wise. And while the understanding of this can be done, explained in a couple of ways, it does point out here that the five virgins who run out of oil and they go and try to get some more and they come back and knock on the door, the door is closed and the master of the house says, does not open, he goes, I don't know you. I don't know you. So the point of bringing this out is when it's, we have this incorruptible seed and we keep that, God does know us. But it is up to you and to me to maintain God's spirit in us by following his way of life. If we lose God's spirit, he does not know us. We are not going to be given eternal life. It tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we should not quench the spirit. We should not re, uh, refuse the inspiration that we receive from it to do certain things, to not do other things. And sometimes we let our human nature override God's nature in us through his Holy Spirit. Let's, point, let's go over then to Romans chapter 6, talking about reviewing here the importance that in repentance we turn from a wrong way of life and we pursue God's way of life. Because being forgiven of our past sins at baptism does not give us permission to continue doing what's wrong and living in sin. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. It says, what should we say then in verse 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to keep doing what's wrong so that God just will keep pouring out forgiveness and mercy on that to glorify him? No. It says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it if we have this repentant attitude? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus we're baptized into his death. We are to stay away from sin. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism and death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Our life going forward from the day of baptism is one of pursuing God's way of life, one of obedience, and one of serving him. And remember that we find in Romans chapter 5, or Acts chapter 5, verse 32, that God gives his spirit to those that obey him. So if God gives us his spirit at baptism, and he gets us as one of his children, then if we are going to keep receiving that spirit from God, it's based on whether or not we obey him. That God gives us his spirit. 
based on obedience. And we know from David's writing in Psalms that great understanding through God's Spirit are those who keep His commandments. So God continues to give us understanding and gives us strength to do that. Now, when we read all of that, because Paul makes it very clear in these writings that, and, and, and Christ as well, because Christ made the comment, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments, so we are to obey. But if we go over to James chapter 2, we must reflect on this for a moment, because Paul tells us that obedience does not blot out sin. Obedience does not blot out the penalty of sin. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this was even referenced in the Bible study this past uh, Wednesday by Mr. Mr. Wakefield in talking about some of the things that associated as well with Passover and then leavened bread, that we have to obey God. And we find here in James chapter 2, we'll read verses 18 through 24, very familiar with it, these scriptures. But James writes, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That faith is a motivator to obey God. It produces works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And this, this was, this idea was referenced even in the telecast by Mr. McNair about some people believe all you have to do is believe in Christ. But if you read that scripture, clearly that is not enough. That believing in Christ as the Bible would have it incorporates a great many more aspects than just an emotional or an academic knowledge of the fact that Christ existed, that God exists. Even if you see the demons believe and they tremble. Verse 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So pretty clear here that, that just having faith, this idea of believing in Christ, is a foolish idea. And he writes, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, we read elsewhere in the book, back in Genesis, that the faith of Abraham, what the fact that he believed God and his promise, that was accounted to him as for righteousness. And that faith, that belief, is what allowed him or enabled him to be willing to sacrifice his son, even though, as it turned out, he didn't have to do that. But that was just further proof of his faith. So he points out about faith here that that when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar, that faith showed that faith, that works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and he was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And Paul was writing to point out that the obedience doesn't blot out sin. He takes the faith in the blood of Jesus Christ to blot out the sin. But once that is exercised, James points out very clearly here that we are expected then to follow through with works of obedience and serving our God. Over in 1 Timothy, when when I pointed out that we have to work and make sure that we maintain our contact with God and serve Him and lay hold of His Holy Spirit and keep it. There is the hazard that we could lose it. There are some who believe that once saved, always saved, quote-unquote. But we know that is simply not the case. But Timothy does point out here, or Paul points out in First Timothy chapter 4, First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And I'm just going through this to, to stress the importance of maintaining this gift of God's Holy Spirit 
Because that's what identifies us. That's what makes us one of God's children. That's how we, he knows who we are, who his people are. And the Spirit, this Holy Spirit, inspires his writing. Another Spirit expressly says that in latter times, in our age, some will depart from the faith, the truth, the true faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So there are some that God will call, departing from the faith, they will give up his spirit. And notice what it says here, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, I'm sure that that's quite foreign to all of us, to have this idea of having our conscience seared and not trusting in God, not serving God. Otherwise, we would not be here. But it is possible to lose God's Spirit. We are expected to hold on to it. Hebrews chapter 10, well, Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 10 both both make references to not uh, not losing God's spirit, not losing our understanding. But that's just a matter of, I want to stress that, that we have a this special gift that makes you and me the begotten children of God, which is a guarantee, it's a down payment on eternal life. And we maintain that spirit, we are going to be in God's kingdom. Romans chapter 6 Verse 23, turn back there again, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, shows the contrast, scripture that we all know, it says, for the wages of sin is death, that we, if we continue in sin, we would die eternally, but if we repent and are baptized, then God gives us his Holy Spirit, and that is the guarantee of what this says here in the last part. But the gift, and the margin shows, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the reason I go through all of that, and we have plenty of scriptures to prove it, to point out is whether or not in our minds, sometimes again, are we subtly thinking that our obedience somehow blots out what we did yesterday. Do we have this sometimes maybe in the back of our minds that we know we sinned and somehow we may not repent immediately and we we want to change and maybe two or three days later after being good that now we can go to God and talk to him. And ask him for his forgiveness because, you see, I've changed. Because we're thinking about the works. We're not concentrating on the fact that God is merciful and he promises to be forgiving. And it all comes under the blood of Jesus Christ. Not, again, based on our good works. Now, that's if, of course, we come out of our, our faults and our weaknesses. We want to not lose God's Holy Spirit. So eternal life is a gift. We do not earn it. There is no way, shape, or form that we can be good enough and do enough good things, be obedient enough that we literally earn and deserve for God to make us a spirit being. It's just too great for that. It's only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. But the Bible, as we know, also speaks a great deal about reward. And eternal life, I'd like to just draw that differentiation. Eternal life, we, we think about it as a reward, and it's easy to do that, but it's really a gift. It's not a reward for something you and I do. Eternal life is a gift, but the Bible does talk a great deal about a reward. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 27, 
Christ speaking, says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then, when he returns, then he will reward each according to his works. And that's not eternal life, because eternal life is a gift. But Christ says he will bring a reward with him. In Psalm 19, In Psalm 19, not just talking about a, a reward when Christ returns, in the context of it here. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Psalm 19, verse 7. For the law of the eternal is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the eternal is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the eternal are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the eternal is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the eternal is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the eternal are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by all these statutes, by the judgments, by the law, by the commandments, by them, your servant is warned. We're cautioned about what we should do and what we should not do. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Great reward in this life and in the life to come. But David could see that they were... These laws are there for our benefit, and they bring about a lot of good things. Let's go back over to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read another verse that we did not read earlier when we turned there. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read verses 8 and 9 before. So verse 8 again, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, Yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That we are here. We are called to be a part of God's family. And in this life we are to produce good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's been part of his plan from the very beginning for us to obey his law and for us to do good things and serving him and in serving and serving people, serving his brethren. He expects us to do these things. In, the, in uh, Titus, again, where we were earlier, Titus chapter 3, we read verses 4 through 7. Before, and I'll pick it up in verse 7 here, and we'll read verse 8. It says that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That being begotten of God makes us an heir of his kingdom. And then verse 8, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Something Paul was telling Timothy, that be sure to preach these things often, that those who have believed in God, believed in God, believed on Jesus Christ, repented, baptized, those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. The very same writer who said that you have to believe in God and faith and the blood of Christ is what brings forgiveness, what is the, brings the gift of eternal life. But he says to be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So we are reminded many, many times that we are to continue to obey God. We are to serve him. And the more we do, the better. The better for those that are benefited as well as ourselves. And we know... In Galatians chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it. But Galatians chapter 5, 
what God says not to do. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we are to avoid all of that. Those Paul has this long list of things we should not do, should not be, and we've come out of those things one way or the other. God had brought us out of, out of the world, and many of those things, I would assume we're not guilty of them, even before God called us. But those things are not part of qualifying for God's kingdom. God will not give eternal life to someone. He, in order to give eternal life, that gift, we have to be doing good works. We have to be following and abiding by God's law. In John 15, which we read at Passover time, John 15, this matter of continuing to serve God, which we've been pointed out by many times, this idea that, well, just because we've been forgiven of a violation of the law, a human law, that being forgiven of that does not give us the right to go out and break the law again. So God is telling us the very same thing through these scriptures and these verses. But in John 15, it points out something really important here for us. It says, I am the true vine, in verse 1, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So we are expected to bear fruit. We are expected, commanded to do good works. And if we don't, then we're pruned away. It's in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I gave, I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned, which is a a metaphor of being cast into the lake of fire if we were to rebel against God. But the point out here, what he's saying is that we have to abide in Christ in order to bear fruit. Because without him, without him living his life in us through the power of God's spirit, we cannot bear fruit. We can't do anything of and by ourselves. Our human effort is insufficient. Now, when it talks about that, it's talking about a, I think, uh, clearly a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior, that abiding in Him and following His way of life. But abiding in Him, because it says, the Bible also tells us, that the church is the body of Christ. So if we're going to abide in Christ, we want to make sure we abide in the church. Make it very clear, makes it very clear that we are not independent Christians. We just do our our own, do things our way, all by ourselves, that we, we are part of the body and sharing our lives with each other. Being here, what this is in Hebrews, that assembling ourselves together, spending time with one another, enables us to grow spiritually, enables us to take further steps towards God's kingdom. So we are expected to produce much fruit. Now, we also know that Hebrew, or Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, talks about overcoming. And seven times, as we know, seven times talks about those who overcome are going to be part of the first resurrection, part of God's kingdom. We have to be overcomers, being willing to serve God and this church 
and certainly down through the ages, that's been true. God expects us to be overcomers and do what he commands, follow his law, and follow through after we have been baptized and we've been given this gift that promises eternal life. So if we do, what is our reward? I'll just make reference to Matthew 25 again, verses 14 through 30, where we have one account there, the parable of of the talents, where the men are given a talent and expected to bear fruit, expected to bear produce increase. And one one man produces ten, one man produces five, and one man produces nothing. He just keeps what he has. And what the one man who only had, didn't do anything with it had no no produce, no overcoming, no growth, no good works. That talent was taken from him and given to the man that had produced ten. And pointed out there that God is going to reward those that based, that based on their works, based on their accomplishments, based on their obedience and doing the things that God promises. What well, God expects us to do and promises that there will be a reward for it. So that reward, we don't know all the details, but let's turn over to John 14. John 14, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And the margins is dwellings. Can be rendered offices or positions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Christ says he, for them and for us, he is preparing a place for you and me in his kingdom, a position. Now, uh, the billions of people that have been around for since the time of Adam, and all the plans that God has in his kingdom and offices of responsibility. You know, how, how many, how many jobs are there? <laughs> well, if you just want to use the federal government as an example, <laughs> there are lots of jobs. <laughs> many of them are superfluous, frankly, apparently. Uh, but in God's kingdom, he says God's preparing positions for you and for me. Does he know what position you and I have already? Or is he not evaluating what you and I do and how we live day by day? At some point, if you want to call it earning, but qualifying for a position in that kingdom. There are lots of them. And the more we overcome, we are qualifying for the ability not for self-aggrandizement, We're not for some position, some title, but for, again, the ability to serve and to give and to lead and to help and to teach, to do whatever God will have us do. Certainly in the millennium we understand some of that, but what will be going on uh, after the new heavens and new earth come? Uh, We don't know all the details about that, certainly, but whatever it is, God is preparing you and me a position where we are going to be given a reward. And he expects us to do good works, expects us to overcome. And how many positions are there? Probably more than, you know, more than we realize. How many people will be in that first resurrection? And for that matter, because there will be many more in the millennium, in the white throne judgment, that obey and serve God, those positions will be prepared for them as well in due time. God is going to give us a reward based on what we do with the talents, with the gifts you and I have been given. And regardless of what we may think about ourselves, 
and in all humility, God does tell us we do have gifts. Through God's Holy Spirit, we can do things, and God will give us the ability to overcome, the ability to change, and then to grow. And so it's interesting in terms of growing, this idea of pleasing God and growing. Over in Second Peter chapter 3, Second Peter chapter 3, Very last verse, verse 18, the encouragement or the admonition that Peter extended to the readers. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. The word grow there is only found in three places in the New Testament in reference to spiritual growth. Word grow can be used other ways, but the New Testament, the context is growing spiritually. So we are to grow, produce good works. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge, the grace, the mercy, the favor, the blessings of God. And Jesus Christ and also the knowledge, we learn more, we study more, we are to produce these good works of actually using God's Spirit to produce these two fruits of growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what are some of these good works? What are the good works that you and I can do that are going to, if you will, earn the reward? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23 Again, in contrast to the works of the flesh, but he mentions here the things that we should be producing with God's Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Those are the kinds of things that you and I want to pursue. And how we develop those traits of character are, can be a measure of the talents that we're producing. Can be a measure of becoming like Jesus Christ. And of course all of that is un, uh, in the context of humility. Again, it's not for position or vanity, but it does tell us back in Proverbs, that before honor, which would be an honor to be a part of God's kingdom, but before honor is humility. God is not going to give those kinds of rewards to those that are vain and puffed up by their own strength. Then the first Corinthians chapter 12, as we move toward the, the end here to a degree. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, talking about these fruits and men growing. It says, but earnestly desire the best gifts, the gifts of God's Holy Spirit. And if you read back in the earlier part of the chapter, it does give a list of items, verses 7 through 9, mentions some of the first ones. And usually there is some some relevance to the listing, the sequence of, of them. Verse 7, it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for profit of all. So we are, these fruits, these items of the Holy Spirit that produces is for the benefit of everyone. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And James tells us if we lack wisdom, we should ask God, and he gives liberally. So we should want and pursue wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge through the same spirit. And understanding God's word is a gift of that spirit. So we should want more more clear understanding and knowledge of God's, God's way and God's word. And to another, faith by the same spirit. These are some of the... More important ones, I guess I could put it that way, that the 
greater ones. He pointed out in verse 31, desire the best gifts. There are several of them that are listed in Corinthians. Uh, had, had apparently had all of them to a degree. One has to wonder why, because they had, it was the church was, had a good number of problems. But God did give them, through His Spirit, He gave them a bunch of gifts, but He points out, Paul writes out, which ones are the better ones to pursue? And then He goes on, last part of verse 31, and yet I show you a more excellent way. He talks about producing love, using God's Holy Spirit to have the right kind of love, in which we discussed that. I discussed that with you on the last day of unleavened bread here in chapter 13. He talks about godly love, that how we care for one another, how we care for mankind in general, sighing and crying after the abominations of Israel and understanding the sorrows that mankind is inflicting on itself. And our concern for all of God's creation, that kind of godly love that God expects us to have. So that is the kind of good fruit, the kind of good work that God says he will reward. Another one, another item that is important through God's Holy Spirit is that of contributing to the unity in God's church. Making sure that you and I are contributing to the unity of it. Again, in 1 Corinthians Chapter 12, verses 25 through 27. One of the things that God expects of us, so there should be no schism, not, not any in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for, for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. You and I are individual components to the body of Jesus Christ. And how we contribute to that unity. Very important. God does expect us to do that in Ephesians 4 in talking about the functioning of the, of the ministry. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why did he create these positions? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up, the strengthening of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. When we first come into the church, there may not, we may not see or be able to contribute to that unity, but it says here to, to the unity of the faith that God's way of life is one, oneness. He and Christ are absolutely one in character, in righteousness, in purpose, in love, and that we come into that body of Christ, we are to learn to contribute to the same kind of harmony, the same kind of peace, the same kind of oneness. How much of a one, what are we? How do we, how carefully do we contribute to that to show the kind of, the kind of concern the kind of appreciation, this kind of attention to one another that makes us truly one body because of the faith that we share. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge. We all come to have this same knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Those are the kinds of works the kinds of fruit that we can produce through God's Holy Spirit that God says he will reward. He is designing a kingdom. He is on preparing offices for you and for me. He's going to give us a reward based on the produce that you and I use his spirit in order to provide and contribute to his body. Let's turn back then 
in closing to Romans chapter 6. Just one final affirmation and read that scripture one more time, the last part of it. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says, The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is holding out a gift, offering us a gift through the power of his Holy Spirit that he's given to us in our minds and our lives, that if we hold on to that, he will give us eternal life. And then based on the use of God's Holy Spirit to produce good works, to serve one another, to do his work, to contribute to it, and to contribute to bringing the body of Christ into unity. He will give you and me a fantastic reward in that kingdom once he has given us life.